0: Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 21 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. In this episode, you'll hear Part 1 of my conversation with Dr Ian Tindall, a cognitive behavioural psychologist at the University of Chichester, where he also runs the Functional Behavioural Science Laboratory. Ian is a man who is so warm and welcoming, and his humble approach to his knowledge and expertise is truly inspiring. He's also a cracking storyteller... Let's hear from Ian for a moment. Here he talks about attentional bias,
1: what we call cognitive biases. So a person who might have an intentional bias is somebody, for example, a spider phobic who's full their attention is taken up by looking and scanning all around the environment for spider-related um, stimuli. It could be like a cobweb in the corner. Sure. It could be someone mentioning spiders. Someone mentioning the word venom. Just their their, mm. their whole attention span is taken up by anything that's related to their fear. Um, say a person with attention, uh, a bias for social phobia will have an be some environment for any possibility that they might have to give a speech in public, whether it's a presentation for a class, whether the boss is asking him to give a presentation and a report, and they will be hyper-vigilant for, for that threat stimulus. So right. that was the research. I was...
0: Now you'll hear a lot more from Ian in just a moment. But before we get there, let me just tell you a bit about people soup. People Soup is a community of people who are interested in behavioral science at work and how we can make it accessible, fun, and useful for ourselves and each other. At work, behavioral science has the capacity to enhance our well-being, help us be the person we want to be more often, and provide us with perspectives to enable cooperation, collaboration, and innovation. It was psychologist Abraham Maslow who said: "A first-rate soup is more creative than a second-rate painting." And that was the inspiration for this podcast. More than ever, the world of work is a heady mix of people, behaviour, events and challenges. When the blend is right, it can be first rate. Behavioural science and psychology has a lot to offer in terms of recipes, ingredients, seasoning, spices and utensils. So welcome to People's Soup, where we aim to nourish the mind and flourish at work. In news and reviews... Our last episode was called The Flaxentosh Poetry Corner, where me and my pal, Paul Flexman, shared a couple of poems. Louise Gardner, also known as my actante and your actante, said, Check out this great episode from People Soup. It's the first time I've heard these poems and I found them both really moving. And thank you for the illustration shout-out too, Ross. Can I come for an Italian meal with you and Paul next time? Yum! Yes, indeed, Lou. You are very welcome to come with us on the road whenever you wish. Just say the word. If you do enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review it, whatever platform you're on. It helps us reach more people with stuff that could be useful. Reviews and ratings are so important to, to getting that stuff out there. For now, get a brew on and have a listen to part one of my conversation with the brilliant Ian Tendall. I am delighted to be here with Dr. Ian Tyndall at the University of Chichester today. Welcome, welcome Ian to People Soup. Delighted to have you here. Thanks for hosting me here. Thank you,
1: Ross. I'm really happy to have you here and thank you for a great session with our master's students this morning on ACT and coaching in the workplace. Um, it's something that we are trying to enhance with our students to try and showed them how psychology is applied in the workplace, And there's lots of different career types and not just a traditional, say, mm. clinical psychology or educational psychology. There's so many more career types for psychologists out there. And I thought your talk this morning was a real eye-opener for our ah, students. Thanks, yeah.
0: thanks. Thanks. Because what I was loving to... I heard a little bit about some of their research. And it's so diverse what they're doing, but they're real. We need more scientists like them in the workplace yeah. um, sharing evidence-based stuff. I'm hoping I might persuade some of them to, to move into a more organisational setting. Okay. I don't know, but um, it was a real privilege to to, have a, to be able to share some act with them.
1: No, oh, it's great. They really uh, appreciate that. Mm. They're really engaged. And great. so uh, the level of questioning afterwards was really impressive, I thought, as well. Mm.
0: And I've just dined like a prince at the <laughs> University Canteen here. I think it's the first person that's ever said that. <laughs> 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 the I'm University, really, university yeah. Canteen. I had but, a cheeseburger and it was... It was lovely, I thought. Okay. Now, Ian, you'll be familiar, I have a research department, yeah. so I've made a few notes here about you. Some of these, my research department isn't known all the time for its accuracy, <laughs> so um, forgive me if it's not all correct, but let me just check a few things with you. So, so, Dr. Ian Tindall is a cognitive behavioral psychologist in the Department of Psychology within the University of Chichester's Institute of Education, Health and Social Sciences. <laughs> I had to practice that. But, um, so you've studied in, in various different places, and you've taught in different places. So you first studied in the National University of Ireland in Galway, and then you did your PhD for your research on the language processes and learning histories underlying the development and maintenance of clinical anxiety.
1: That's quite a note of <laughs>
0: <laughs> Mate, that is a long, long title, other, but um, yeah. it sounds amazing and then you worked as a, as a lecturer in psychology at the American College in Dublin oh, yeah. and then you came over to Chichester in according to this research notes says about 2010
1: you have me down to a so oh. you know
0: your your, your research has done there well. excellent to take up a senior lectureship in psychology here you do some amazing stuff here and you can talk more about your research interests in a moment but um I also noticed that you're on the editorial board of the Psychological Record and Frontiers in Psychology, Clinical and Health, and you regularly review for other journals as well. I've got a whole list of your publications, which I probably won't read out because yeah. <laughs> some of them are a bit tongue-twistery, but hopefully some of that will come out as we, as we speak, and I'll put a yeah. link on the show notes to to your profile page. I'm
1: thinking I'll be able to explain it in more Layman's terms, for sure. Great. But
0: one of the exciting things in your bio is you are, I want to call you the boss of the Functional Behavioural Science Laboratory. Is that the correct term? It's funny.
1: I don't think I'd ever be considered the boss of anything. But no, (laughs) that, that is each of us here at the University of Chichester. And we all have our own specific laboratories, which reflects our own research uh, areas of expertise. So within this, this lab, we do research mainly in contextual behavioral science, and um, referring to kind of acceptance and commitment therapy mm. and those kind of pro- other processes like that, and how it's applied to the real world. So within that, we work with our PhD students and our master students and some undergraduate students in that, as well as my international international colleagues and collaborators. Wow,
0: that's brilliant! It makes me wish I was a student again. You can come back. Job. We will take it tomorrow. Oh <laughs> Hmm. Tempted. Um, I'm looking at your lab's research using relational frame theory, and P-Supers, I've mentioned this before, we call it RFT, to enhance educational attainment, including the SMART intervention program. I
1: think that's something that we're really excited about, and we just had a paper accepted for publication the other day on that particular SMART program. So that's something that I will Ah. tell your P-Supers about, but that's something that... Is one of our main research interests.
0: Great. And then something else that caught my eye was work on ostracism, attention and problem solving and decision making. So maybe we can can come back to a bit of that. My research department has a couple of other things. It it says you are an expert guide to the city of Chichester. (laughs) That's it. -hmm. I think, Ross, I'm going to give you some questions now, in terms
1: of how old the the cathedral is at Chichester. Oh, gosh. Uh, Were you really listening this morning?
0: It's quite old. (laughs) Yes, finally. (laughs) But I do know it has a separate bell tower. You told me that. Ian took me on a little, beautiful little tour of some bits of Chichester on the way here. And the other thing it says is... It's a really fast walker. <laughs> I noticed this. As I was struggling to keep yeah. up at times. This guy can move. It's like it's like you're a speed walker. Do you have any um, uh, medals in that at all? Has anyone ever noticed no, that but I, before? I think uh,
1: my wife would laugh at that. I think she, ah, she, okay. she would
0: empathise. <laughs> as I was saying that, I was thinking, you know, shit, I might be the first person to no, ever no, say this. Be, to
1: you. A habit of leaving my family behind. <laughs> you,
0: you do walk fast, man. Huh? Okay. That's impressive. So, so joking aside, tell me a bit more about yourself. What what else has brought you to this this point in 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 your career and your life? And um, thanks for the invitation, um, Ross. I think
1: when I'm just thinking about now that, you're here about the journey that I've undertaken. So, if I think back to my childhood and adolescence, like one of the key defining features it was I had a huge stutter. So, a public speaking career would have been seen as a completely ridiculous career choice for me because. I was effectively imprisoned within, at that time, not being able to speak at all. Mm. So I'd begin, try to begin a sentence and then i get stuck in the first letter and the first sounds, first funny, and then the whole moment would pass. And then, so I think it's a major characteristic of me from my childhood is not being able to speak and not being able to say what I wanted. So mm. um, it just kind of struck recently when I was back and I had to give a public uh, speech at a, an event back in Ireland when two people come up to me afterwards said who knew me was a child and had sleepovers in their houses with, with their children. So I've never heard you speak like that in, in in your life. Like they always remember me as their really bad stuttering child. Mm. So that's something. So it's um, it's something that I would like to say to, to readers for anyone who's who has that kind of condition or suffer from mm. that. That it's something that doesn't necessarily limit the life choices and career choices that, that you can, and that you may be over, able to overcome such obstacles. And it was a very severe obstacle. Mm. I was okay in school because nearly all school exams are written based and they're absolutely fine. But in terms of actually speaking and and talking, and that's what I do every day in the job now is public speaking. And it's something that I love doing, but it's something I would never have predicted when I was seven years of age or 15 years of age or 20 years of age. So I think it's an effect of labeling uh, as as well, Ross, because I had a PhD supervisor when I was in Galway, Professor Jack James, who was an expert in, in stuttering. Um, and something that he treated a lot of people in that domain when he was in Australia before he moved to Ireland, and when he was looking at me, he said, you, "You don't, you wouldn't classify yourself as a stutterer, stutter or a stammerer now, even though I always thought I was still mm. at that stage." And he said, "Well, you're more characterised by verbal disfluencies," and I felt elated by that. Like I know some, some some people say labelling is is bad, but sometimes it works mm. um, in a positive fashion. So in a sense that's gave me kind of the encouragement to go on and say I will always have a little bit of a kind of stammer stutter but it doesn't have to limit all my life it doesn't have to stop me doing the things I love and I do love teaching and mm-hmm. I do love and um, lecturing there'll still be times I know it'll come but I know it'll pass so I've learned to come accept and I use a lot of acceptance agreement therapy on myself to overcome that and so become more flexible when those times arise that mm-hmm. you know it's coming I'm not going to be able to speak here and I'm going to get stuck on that particular sound and, and so on and in terms of my my career path so probably the best decision I ever made in my life was going to Galway to do uh, to do psychology at the National University of Ireland and that was just an excellent excellent time I did my undergraduate degree there so I I wanted to do counselling psychology but then uh, I mentioned Professor Jack James so he asked me a couple of times to come back to do a PhD and I really wasn't sure because it wasn't what I thought my career was going to be I thought Mm -hmm. I wanted to work one on one with, with clients and help them but um, but Jack saw some some potential in me as a kind of a, in a, an academic kind of scholarly fashion so, um, so when, it, when it came back it's something that I'm really glad I did like, so um, we did research I was going to be doing research sorry, in cognitive areas So, what we call cognitive biases so a person who might have an intentional bias is somebody for example a spider phobic who's full their attention is taken up by looking and scanning all around the environment for spider related um Steamline could be like a cobweb in the corner. Sure, could be someone mentioning spiders. Someone mentioning the word venom. Just their their, mm. their whole attention span is taken up by anything that's related to their fear. And um, say a person with attention uh, a bias for social phobia will have an they'll be scanning kind of environment for any possibility that they might have to give a speech in public, whether it's a presentation for a class, whether the boss is asking them to give a presentation and a report. And they will be hyper vigilant for for that threat stimulus. So wow. that was the research I was interested in at first. But then um, Jack happened to um, be friends with Professor um, Dermot Barnes-Holmes. and so it, it was a, a university in, in Ireland called the National University of Ireland, in Maynooth. And at that time, Dermot Barnes-Holmes is working very closely with Steve Hayes in, in in America. So Steve is really well known for developing acceptance commitment therapy and co-developing relational frame theory. And so, so Jack wanted to know more about this development, so he encouraged me to go um, to, to Tumenuth and find out more uh, about this new theory. And the Relational Frame Theory book hadn't been published at this at this stage, so this was just a year before that. The Act book was only out maybe, maybe two or three months, so it was right at, at, at the beginning. So it just seemed like a really exciting time, so I went there and then... Um, So I worked very closely with with Brian Roach, uh, Dr. Brian Roach at National University of Ireland, who became my Mm co-supervisor on on that, along with Professor Jack James. So I was brought down that route of doing behavioral psychology with relational frame theory. So And that's how I got into the work, looking at how language impacts anxiety and influences our responses to um, stressful events or anxiety-evoking stimuli. In the farms, so that's pretty much why my thesis was about. It was really looking about how talk therapy works because mm. the, the majority of people are not going to be going to an institution where they get exposed to um, treatment over twenty four seven over a period of a few weeks, unless it's very very severe. So the majority of people will get to see a talk therapist for maybe one hour a week for maybe ten weeks, perhaps with if, it, and then so we wanted to look at how those processes are really working. So how is language working to help a person become less anxious? Become less stressed, and become less depressed, and become a little bit uh, happier in the life, and just increased your overall quality of life and well being. So that's mm. where the, the research um, was in. Um, so I worked at that for a while, and then halfway through my, my PhD, I took a full time position at the American College Dublin. So my PhD took a, a bit longer than normal, but I'd also say for for peace supers that there's so many routes you can take. Like so, when I was doing the PhD, the idea was you had to get it done in in three years, and you had to get a certain number of publications, but just um, lots of different ways of doing it. And certainly, for anyone who wants to thinking come back to do doctoral research or master's research, mm-hmm. you can definitely do it alongside full time working and careers and, and families. So that's something it takes a it takes time and it's certainly challenging, but it is definitely doable. So I'm glad I did it that that way. And then um, I had the opportunity to come over to the University of, of Chichester. I had applied for some jobs in Indonesia, Canada, sure, Germany, yeah. and then I'd never even heard of Chichester before mm. I applied. I'd been in England lots of times, but never heard of mm. Chichester Judas. But size. Um, so when I got called for an interview, I ended up having to cancel the, my, my interview because of the Icelandic volcano eruption. Ah, yes. Yeah, so, I remember uh, it. So wow. my flights are canceled, so I canceled the interview and just soon wasn't going. So... Um, but then it just shows you the influence that people can still have on, on your life because my dad rang and then he was later that night, even though I was independent living on my own, had my own career and he was really convinced me to go and to maybe take a ferry and multiple trains to get down. So I said, I said, no, I'm, I'm not interested. It sounds like a really nice place, but I'm, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm fine with where I am in Dublin, where where I was at the time. But then he rang again a second time that that night and was very persuasive. So. And then I decided next morning to ring up Chichester and said, "Sorry, I will actually come over for the interview now." So it probably like shows you like a lot of decisions in life are accidents. Of fate there's a lot of chance involved because I had cancelled the interview and decided yeah. I wasn't going to Chichester. So it turned, but it was kind of a a nice icebreaker for the interview, like having come on a 13 hour journey with with a ferry (laughs) and multiple trains and the length of Britain to do it. So, but it's a a really good choice. I'm glad that that it's a choice that I I made. But it just shows you if my dad hadn't rang me that night, probably would never have come to Just I just would have assumed that okay, it's fate that the Icelandic volcano erupted, the flights are cancelled, can't go for an interview. That's fine. But it just shows you that. And again, just to show that there's a lot of factors can play, there's an awful lot of luck involved and a lot of decisions that, that you can make in life. So I've been been here since that was two, 2010. Mm. So it was a really exciting time to be at the University of Chichester because we were just starting up a brand new department. And we only had some first years at, the, at that particular moment. So we only had one year, one cohort, and then we've, we've developed hugely from there. And so now we've got lots of different problems. We got uh, our undergraduate degrees in educational psychology, criminology, and mm-hmm. forensic psychology, and counseling psychology, along with our own where standard BSc psychology problems and our master's problem, which you left us this morning.
0: Yeah, that's quite that's quite a breadth of yeah, of psychology tuition in that's developed in quite a short time, yeah, yeah. in like 10 years. Absolutely, so it's been exciting. But
1: And one of the reasons I enjoyed being here is that when you're at the beginning of something, they really are receptive to mm. your ideas. I had a lot of ideas in a way I thought a psychology program could work and what kind of modules mm. might work and what kind of ideas. So that was a really open to And it's a really lovely place to, to to study. And we've got some excellent, really excellent students and something that yeah. really, I'm really passionate about teaching and I really do love psychology. So
0: Yeah, I'll vouch for the, the excellent students. Yeah. I met some this morning but also the facilities apart from the marvellous canteen. It's a beautiful campus. Chichester is a beguiling
1: campus for sure. It is. We're really lucky. As I said, when I'm travelling to other other campuses around the UK, quite often for various different functions and examining purposes, a lot of them are in inner cities with some kind of... 1960s style building that are kind of rushed up so when you come back to Chichester it reminds me when, when you walk around the beautiful campus and uh, yeah. we have all our trees it's very very green and we have the old classical buildings which is yeah. really nice
0: yeah it's, it's beautiful I'm, I'm blown away by it so yeah and thank you for being so so open and, and reflective and honest about your, your story from being a child because I think that's so powerful to share that that you never thought you'd have a, a career where you were Speaking for a living, but oh no! I always in. thought I'd be
1: hidden behind something like a computer or something, just yeah. like in in a cubicle somewhere, just not just doing the job. Like as as said, exams were never a problem for me. I I, I actually enjoy enjoy exams. I enjoyed mm. studying for them because they're mostly written, but mm. it was never so. It was whenever it had to be oral, and it wasn't anxiety. So it was never an anxiety thing. I just actually could physically couldn't produce the sound or scene like that. And then once then once the moment goes, it feels like you've got nothing to say. And because sure. you're just going to be quiet, quiet, quiet. but um, But something, I think, going to go it changed a, a, a lot of that for, mm. for me as well. So.
0: Hey, P-Supers. At this point, I took Ian back to the first time he came across ACT. I was keen to hear more.
1: When Jack James uh, had, um, was friends with Dermot Barnes-Holmes, so he asked me to go to to um, Dermot and just find out a little bit more about relational frame theory, and not so much about ACT, but specifically about relational frame theory. So when I went to Maynooth, it was a tiny department. There was only two lecturers there. So they had no psychology department as such. So Dermot had just been appointed to set up the department and Brian Roach was the first um, lecturer that was appointed there. So it was an exciting time because they didn't have students there. They had a bit more time to, to speak to, um, mm. to me. Like, so we would have long, three or four hour meetings all about relational frame theory. Wow. So I was trying to get my my head around it. Um, but it was it was a real fun time, a really exciting time. And they were... They were really passionate about getting it and they were in the process of writing the very first relational frame theory book. So it took a while to get my, my head around it, but it felt really urgent. It felt a need to be done. And we invited Steve Hayes over to Galway. And it's one of those moments where there might be only maybe 12 people in the room. Whereas you invite Steve now to a talk somewhere in the UK, you're going to pack it out. Mm-hmm. And um, you'll have people traveling all over the country to see him. So it's just amazing how much growth there's been. But I was there at at, at, at the beginning and it was just it just seemed like a really nice package. And it was quite a challenge for me because I had um, St. Brian, who was very passionate on one side, very firmly believed in relation frame theory, acceptance and commitment therapy. But I also had my other supervisor, Jack James, who who had sent me to to find out more about, about this. But then when we read the acceptance commitment therapy book together, um, Jack was quite sceptical and said, I love the first three chapters, which are based on stimulus equivalence, derived relational responding and relational frame theory, which is um, just all, all about how we form relations and how we respond to similar in the world and so on. And he said, but he didn't think the other chapters were new or novel. So mm-hmm. at one side, people who said it was totally novel and one person a bit sceptical. So that was quite useful for the development of my thinking and uh, the kind of research that I had to do and the questions that I had to ask. And when I asked Jack why it was not new, he said, any well-trained um, psychotherapist or clinical scholars will know this stuff because it's values-based, um, which is hu- um, humanism. It's, goal, it's goal-directed committed action, which is Jared Egan's skilled helper model. So well, there's an awful lot of models that were already out there that, were, that I use a lot. He said that um, mind, um, mindfulness is part of lots of, of therapies like mindfulness-based stress reduction. So, but what well, but, but I was trying to argue is well, that Act brings it all together really well. So, I think Act does certainly borrow a lot from humanistic um, therapies. Certainly, if you've read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, or if you've read any of Carl Rogers' work, or Abraham Maslow's kind of work, you'll see a lot of similarities there mm-hmm. with Act. If you read John Kabat-Sin's um, Mindfulness, you'll see where the present moment awareness comes from. But I think the real skill in Act is bringing it all, all together. But I also agree with, with Jack that the real Innovation in that really came from relational frame theory that was the um, that's how we relate to words and how we become very fused with, 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 with the words and the self stories that we, mm. tell, we tell and tell ourselves yeah, we were talking- and when we mean things like that as well we mean like a, if you say that I am ugly or I am un- unlovable or I am worthless and I am I'm an imposter um, and that's something that we can all have like for just being honest with careers I've had ups and downs in, in careers as well like even for those people who always feel they have to be perfect or um, um, for example academia is just one is one example but it's got lots of ways of telling you that you're not good enough it's yeah. got lots of ways of, like you've got a teaching excellence framework a research excellence framework so the word excellent is in there a lot and you have to be brilliant at so many different capacities you'd be fantastic at uh admin fantastic at teaching fantastic at mm-hmm. research and it's difficult to be excellent at all those various different components but you can apply that to nearly any job like social work or or banking and so on but just mm-hmm. talking about my specific experience so say a good number of years ago when i would have had a, maybe a poor performance evaluation it would have said would have, uh, the word said to me maybe higher education isn't for you so it made me think about acceptance and commitment therapy probably reasons i wouldn't have been publishing as much as others at that particular stage, perhaps. But we are working on a lot of different projects that mm. takes a number of years for them to get to get and pub- uh, to get published over time when you're developing and thinking deeply about about specific ideas. But it it, it just made me think about about the, the workplace, especially because this podcast is about people in in the workplace. Mm. So I'd say it's probably took about a full year, almost twelve months, to come back from that. And because your your identity kind of falls apart when I realise probably identified too much with with, <laughs> with 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 the with your organisation, probably is actually working too hard and then you start to develop some compassion for yourself and realise well, what you're good at and it makes you clearly more clearly think about where the reinforcers lie mm. in, in the job that you do so for me with the reinforcers definitely lie I, I love teaching I, I love to see our students develop um, I love seeing my PhD students really develop and become, uh, the, become the people that they become mm. and develop skills that I don't have like so PhD students come to you quite raw, but then they develop an excellent skill set of expertise in specific domains. And I love to see them going off and forming their own careers and their own mm-hmm. labs. And still saying friends because it's a, it's a mentoring job. Um, you've got silly sayings like, you should never publish with your PhD Supervisor, after you graduate, you're supposed to cut that um, umbilical cord. There's a lot of that kind of nonsense really? in in academia. That's just, I think, that's very silly. Like, if you develop that friendship and the bonds and this shared expertise and particular domain, there's no reason why you can't continue that all over yeah. over career. And that's something that I would like to uh, try to foster in my own PhD students. But certainly for the ones that have graduated, say under me with da- um, Daniel Waldick and Shane and McLaughlin, we've seen real developments. And in the, in I'm really thrilled with the career set that they have. Yeah. Gone and, gone. and we have some current PhD students as well. And, for example, Andre de Silva is doing research with cancer uh, patients. We're looking at the effects of singing in the communal choir. That is only solely for cancer patients. And that's quite powerful, looking at the effects on their psychological well-being, despite, obviously, the clear physical and mm. mental suffering that they're going through with, with the conditions that they're living with. So there's a lot of... Um, Exciting kind of the de- developments, but getting back to the point is that you can o- o- overcome these like these o- o- ups and downs and just. But the identity issue was was, was kind of key. I, I allowed that I became more flexible over time, and then you realize mm. things like work doesn't love you back. I do give everything I have when I'm at work to work, but you realize that if you identify too much with with the work, you can your um your priorities in life might get a bit, bit mm-hmm. skewed especially when you can see that the feedback can be negative but despite that there's been so much more positive uh, feedback and certainly over the last number of years a lot of it is to do with kind of changes the subtle changes the to, to context change so you, like if I say that I've worked harder and say more publications coming down the line um, I wouldn't want to get the impression that it's all down to one person. It's not. It's not down mm-hmm. to you individually. There's so many contextual factors, and this is what we go back to with contextual mm-hmm. um, behavioural science, is that just subtle changes in the organisation and shifts in patterns, of, for example, of workloads in other areas, reducing allows you free more free time to do things like research. So it's a rebalancing of that, the contextual factors plus specific um, maybe studies coming coming together, so you can sometimes you can seem as if we are really productive. It's just a lot of studies get published at the same time, and yeah. then you might go to another follow follow period again. So I'd just like to say to to readers, if you're going or to your listeners, if you're going through that kind of pattern, um, because we're constantly told in academia if you're not publishing, you're you're not yeah. you're not good enough. So it's, it's, the pressure is there. But mm. just to be kind and, and, and to yourself, there will be periods, good periods, and some bad bad periods. But also that you're good enough. I think we're we're often told in, uh, with, with our jobs especially because everything is so capitalistic. You're trying to get mm-hmm. as much out of each person within an organization that you're good enough uh, as, as, you, as you are and just to be flexible within that context uh, and just be kind and compassionate to yourself. Like, so, um, I think it's what, it helps with leaders, but I also think from a leader's perspective, a lot of leaders um, haven't actually been trained in it themselves. They're just being put into position because they're great at sales. Or or the great at um, Excel spreadsheets, or the great at publishing, depending what which uh, area of, of the workplace you're in. But a lot of them haven't been given any training in line managing and five year plans and budgets. So there has to be compassion towards mm-hmm. the leaders as well. But so I think that's something that I've learned from listening to you this morning as well with the coaching psychology and the the people that you deal with and that you give. And workshops to leaders all across, um, say, the school systems and in the NHS, mm. etc. And and you say in, in banking and, and so on in, in, in London. So you see a whole walk of life and and the importance mm-hmm. of really good leadership and leadership having really good values and an organization trying to actually live up to those values. Mm-hmm. Because most organizations have an, ex, an excellent value value statement. You couldn't really fault them, but not many can live up to them because it's, it's quite difficult and there are natural... Financial constraints and, mm. and, and and so on, but it, it's something. But I just say to people, you can have the ups and downs, but I wouldn't want any up period to be saying that it's all down to you because that that was an original criticism with with ACT a While ago is too much about your values and the expense of others. So your values are good as long as you don't hurt mm. other other people as as well. So as long as other people don't get left by the wayside when you're following your path alone, because I think that's too much of an. If you think of the, the Fountainhead, for example, where a- a- Ayn Rand, mm. and you think of how Howard Rourke and building his, his skyscrapers of the sky as mm. monuments to his genius. And it doesn't matter who, who gets hurt along the way, as long as he gets to build yeah. his thing, that represents a monument of his individual greatness. Where I think we, we, we belong in, in a collective, I think there's a huge need to belong, to be part of, of, of a community in, in that sense. So I, I think that there's probably too much emphasis on individualism. And this is something that I want to look at with contextual behavioural science. I think it's really, really useful to look at the kind of the pro-social things that we can do and mm. how we can make societies a little bit kinder, and mm. a little bit warmer and uh, changing the reinforcer and punishment patterns that that society naturally has, has built in. If we can mm. build in more reinforcers and invoke that kind of positive behaviour and reinforce that and we can show people that we value them. And then yeah. once people feel valued and then their identity will generally be, be, be a lot yeah. happier in that sense.
0: Gosh, what you're saying is so it really touches me. It's so profound for, for, for messages for, for for me and for our Supers. There's some things you've said there are just mind blowing because and you're a really captivating storyteller. What a, what just a couple of things that really when you describe that performance review that wasn't that wasn't the best and most, many people would have those. Like, and, so, and how many P Supers have had a performance review that was a bit shit? Yeah. Well, I'm putting my um, hand up. Yeah. And it can be devastating. And sometimes we can use that to define the rest of our career. Uh, it easily could. I suppose in, from my perspective as well, it would have been challenging
1: because I've moved countries. So I'm naturally away from my support network of my family and friends. Mm. For sure, you can call them on the phone. It's not mm. the same as going over to the house and having a cup of tea or just having a beer and a glass of wine and just going over because they're, yeah. they're not there. So it's challenging. But it did, um, I have learned a lot, but I've learned, obviously, to be, be kind and question yourself, but to, to work better, but to realize that some of the things that are demanded are just not re- realistic mm. in, in, in in that particular sense. But also, I probably wouldn't have been publishing much probably in, in a sense of what is needed to be because you tend to see, for example, there's been a few kind of blogs by people like Dorothy Bishop and Unifrith over the last few years, which they be because they're big, big names in psychology in, in the UK. And it's all about slow science, which is really nice. Like, mm. so people should publish maybe one paper a year, maybe two. We publish too much, which I, we do agree with. Like, there's so much out there. It's very difficult to keep up with it all. But that's usually people at the end of their career. they are people in their kind of mm. mid, mid to late 60s when they consider And it doesn't represent the pressures on younger people to within the system you have to publish a certain amount and it has to be of a certain standard mm-hmm. it has to be three or four star and you have to be scoring highly yeah. And rest. so just, it's just kind of a, a, a treadmill with that but even within that I make it sound worse than it is so there's so much joys within mm-hmm. academy, there's so much reinforcement. in it I think I more clearly during a period identified what I like and I love the international collaborate, collaboration mm-hmm. part so that's something that I've just been very fortunate that a number of lots of people have asked in different countries to work with me on a specific project have pretty much all said yes mm. and they all bring something different to, to the to the equation so even for example this week just like a random week I've spoken to colleagues in Italy um, who are thankfully they're off work and they're working remotely from home but yeah. uh, so they're not allowed to go to university and so on but um, on, on a project I've spoken to colleagues in, in, in Portugal two in, in the US one in Canada and that's just a, a particular week but we we're all working on mm. things together as well as here in the UK and in Ireland who I work very regularly with it just shows that on any given week, you can be speaking with really interesting, very clever people around the world, and the people I work with are they're nearly all cleverer than me anyway. I choose people that I think that can add value to to, to what I do. That can that can work. So, and I pick colleagues who are very warm and collegial as mm-hmm. well, but can also tell me when my work isn't very good. I'm happy mm-hmm. with that and take this is where it's weak. This is what we need to do, and we challenge each other all the time. But, but it's so there's so many different projects I have going on internationally. It's think like that's that's a really reinforcing part of the work as well as seeing my students do really well I do love with them mm-hmm. group teaching getting to teach get them to well and seeing them succeed in in all different aspects of their degrees yeah
0: I, I, I love the way you describe the the relationship with your PhD students because I yeah. met um, Shane McLaughlin in Dublin at the conference last year and really interested in his work Shane just for the record, I'm coming to get you as a guest. So, so <laughs> Are you going to travel to Liverpool? He's yeah. Moore, isn't he? We might have to do it yeah, remotely, yeah. but who knows? But um, yeah, really interested in his work. But I love the way you describe the, the level of humbleness with which you describe these collaborations and, and what you get from getting honest feedback. Is the honest
1: feedback. And, we, and they seem to value what we do. And they become friends as well, the, mm. the collaborators and... Um, you talk about families and, and friends and so on and, um, but it's the fact that we all believe in it in, in, in mm. science that we want to do the science. I think especially especially with where the Brexit thing certainly here in the UK, has it's trying to stop kind of free movement of people which will also be stopping the free movement of, of ideas so I think working with these international collaborators, they're great people in the countries they've got mm. everybody wants to do something that will increase the well-being of, of, of people mm. we want to produce really good scientific work not all of it will be brilliant but we do the very best we can mm. and each well important is that each person adds value i will only really work with someone who's going to do some work as well they have to each person will yeah. probably know something that I don't or has a different skill set and we work really well together at teams mm. and and so there's quite a few papers under review at the moment. We'll see how they go. But but there's a lot of different amber uh, projects, and have something that I really enjoy. Wow,
0: how how do you juggle all these different collaborations and and responsibilities in your life? Probably
1: not with any systematic project management skills. So I probably wouldn't be able to give a good project management presentation mm. to somebody who just wants to know what, what's the step by step. Because, but I think just keep keeping people in, in mind. I've got I've. I've got an idea when a project should begin, when, when it, we would hope and it would end. But if a research question develops over time and we get some interesting findings and we want to chase them down a bit more, that's, mm. that, that's fine. Um, but I would probably one of my skills maybe might be to keeping groups together and, and kind of bringing networks together and everybody gets in, in, involved and everybody realizes the value of, of, of each other and they appreciate each other.
0: Because I think
1: people want to do well and they want to help. Mm. and I generally assume goodwill and I, I might be naive in that way but in terms of I really believe in kindness and compassion and I also assume goodwill with people generally as, and that helps me through life I know there's negative things will happen all the time, and some people might have bad intentions mm. but I think it helps me navigate life well by just assuming goodwill and by and large when I'm working within these fields I've been received it as well I like that yeah. if,
0: you, if, you, if you're sort of radiating that, like that to, goodwill yeah. and you're modelling it yourself yeah. as well yeah. I think people will respond in kind or be find their way to you in that way. That's really nice. I'm not quite sure if I'm radiating
1: today, but at least <laughs> it's the first day of sun here in about three, three months. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not it's raining, raining, which is a bit of a breakthrough good, for yes. us.
0: Pay Supers, that's it, in the bag. Tune in next week for part two of my conversation with Ian Tindall, where we delve more into his research and much more. If you like this episode of the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioural science and skills with more people. Of course, a subscription, rating or a view are also very, very much appreciated. The show notes are at rossmackintosh.co.uk and this includes links to a few different platforms. I love to hear from our listeners, dear P-Soupers, and you can get in touch. Yes, you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we're at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, at people.soup. And on the Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and to you for listening. Have a great week, P-Soupers, and bye for now just dined like a prince at the University <laughs> Canteen here. I yeah. think it's the first person's ever said that at <laughs> the University to, I would, yeah. Canteen. I had a cheeseburger and yeah. it was it was lovely, mm. I thought. Okay. Now Ian you'll be from-